This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good morning. I want to wish everybody greetings and good tidings and especially as we prepare to remember the birth of our Lord and Savior tomorrow as we gather with family and friends during this special season. It's appropriate to be joyful and thankful as we share in the bounty, mercy, hope, and love that is found only in Jesus Christ. And as many of you know, we're engaged in an ongoing study of the book of Revelation. I'm um, continuing that study today and it's interesting because uh, I was thinking about the recent play we watched, The Christmas Carol and The Ghost of Christmas Present. And the opening remarks by uh, Brother David this morning, where he talked about this is a time of hope, I think you're going to see that that message is borne out to uh, not the chur in Sardis, but the church in Sardis. I see that there's a misspelling in that slide. Um, but as we celebrate his birth, I want to be mindful of these things and not only Christ's birth, but the commandments and concerns that he has for us today. Uh, he was born of a virgin. He died and he, he lived and he died for a purpose and we're gathered together this morning representing those that he died for. Uh, his birth derives its purpose and its meaning from his death, burial, and resurrection. So it's my hope that as we study our Lord's words from the book of Revelation this morning that we'll, it will allow us to not only remember the infant Jesus, but the God-man Jesus who even now lives and has some very important things to say to his beloved church today through Sardis. So turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to read our text. It's verses 1 through 6. And under the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Sardis was founded around the 12th century B.C., and it was about 35 miles southeast of Thyatira, the last church we studied. It was part of the kingdom of Lydia, and Lydia was one of the richest kingdoms of the ancient world, just as we as a nation today are inexplicably rich and blessed. They're reputed to have been the inventors of coined money. Sardis was built on a plateau of rock rising 1,500 feet above the plain. And those plateau walls were almost perpendicular. Uh, it was part of a 6,700-foot-tall mountain called Tomulus, and the city was inaccessible on every side except one by a narrow passage that was steep, easily fortified, and guarded. And all of this lent Sardis a reputation as an impregnable fortress, so much so that the guards and citizens 
took security for granted, and they were proud and overconfident. Sort of like the United States is surrounded by oceans and, you know, a land invasion seems very unlikely to us. This is the kind of mindset that was in Sardis. And at the time, Sardis was ruled by one king, Croesus, whom you may know as King Midas from myth. The very same Midas who was turned into a cautionary tale. Uh, he had the so-called Midas touch where everything that he touched turned to gold. And his curse was he eventually touched his loved ones and they too turned to gold and he lost them and he was left with the thing he had thought that he loved the most when in reality it was his family whom he'd lost. Now Croesus, as I've said, was immeasurably rich and he was increased with goods. He felt he couldn't be touched even by the most intimidating foe atop his well-defended perch. But the unexpected happened. One night a Persian soldier in the army of Cyrus, resolved to approach that citadel, and he attempted to climb the precipice at a place where no guards were ever set. The rock there was so precipitous and impractical that it seemed to the Sardinians that it would be impossible to scale it. Herodotus says that the soldier climbed that rock himself, and other Persians followed his tracks until a large number of them had mounted all the way to the top. Well, as I said, the walls were carelessly guarded, and because of the failure of those guards to watch, the city was caught off guard. So it was that Sardis was taken, it was utterly pillaged, and it was captured by the Persian Cyrus in 546 B.C. Now, interestingly, Sardis had not been without warning, as it turns out. There was a Greek wise man named Solon who warned King Croesus not to be too confident of safety from attack. But you know, even after that Persian army gathered in the plain below his city, he saw no reason for concern, and it was his doom. <clears throat> this Solon, he was uh, actually an Athenian legislator, and he was lauded for his wisdom, and he went unheeded. The Sardinians recounted this cautionary tale all the way up to the point where the letter to Sardis was penned by John. <clears throat> It was like a proverb of warning to them. And according to Herodotus and Plutarch, Solon met with King Croesus and he gave that Lydian king some advice, which Croesus failed to appreciate until it was too late. Solon is reported to have advised, to have advised King Croesus that no human being is self-sufficient in every respect, for something is always lacking. In every matter, it becomes us to mark well the end for oftentimes the divinity gives men a gleam of happiness and then submerges them in ruin. Now, it was only after he had lost his kingdom and was awaiting execution that Croesus acknowledged the wisdom of Solon's advice. If only he had not taken his security for granted and had heeded wise counsel, well, he might have lived and the kingdom of Lydia might never have fallen. God often points out the importance of seeking wisdom throughout Scripture, and men who do so tend to be remembered, like the three wise men who sought out Jesus at his birth. And when our Lord addressed the church in Sardis, he understood this background. He understood that they knew this story, and he used it to drive home his message. Let me show you what I mean. <clears throat> Revelation 3, verse 1 of our text. 
and unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, and thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Solon was one of seven so-called wise men of Greece. You can see him up there on the screen. He lived from 638 to 558 B.C. Now, these seven wise men had historically been a source of counsel to common folk and rulers alike. Their legacy held, held very great sway over the culture that defined Sardis. And the people of Sardis had learned the hard way that even a king sometimes needs wiser counsel than his own. They'd been raised to believe that sometimes a person had possession of extraordinary wisdom and that to ignore the advice of someone like this would lead to your doom. So I find it interesting that when Jesus opens up his letter to Sardis, he says he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits represent the complete power, operation, and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Sardis was spiritually dead. Its lamp of faith was flickering, almost extinguished. It was like a lamp that was in need of oil. And Jesus directly links the Holy Spirit to oil in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And he reminds the church at Sardis that he has the seven spirits of God. And by this he means the Holy Spirit and all the knowledge, wisdom, power, and foresight that that entails. Several places in Scripture identify the Holy Spirit in this way. Revelation 4, verse 5, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven spirits of God are symbolized as seven oil-burning lamps that are before God's throne, just like in Zechariah 4, verse 2, where he sees the Holy Spirit symbolized as a candlestick, all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon. Then Revelation 5, verse 6, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, this would be Jesus, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So the seven spirits are the seven eyes of the lamb because they are sent forth into all the earth. Now remember, seven in the Bible represents fullness or completeness. It symbolizes that Jesus is omniscient, all-knowing and omnipresent. He's everywhere. He sees all things. Why? Because he sent the Holy Spirit into the whole world. Now, Isaiah describes the Holy Spirit using a sevenfold description. Isaiah 11, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, this was a prophecy that was stating that the temple would be rebuilt not by human strength or resources, but by the power of God's Spirit, who is described in His fullness as the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of power, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. These traits describe the seven spirits of God to illustrate the all-encompassing work of the Holy Spirit. The main theme of these traits is that the Holy Spirit is the source of all true wisdom. Now, going back to our text, he also, Jesus also mentioned that he has the seven stars. And these represent the human guides and teachers of these seven churches. That includes elders, bishops, and perhaps even some evangelists. And as we saw in Revelation 1, verse 20... 
The seven stars are also called the seven angels, which are properly understood to be an elder or bishop overseeing each church. It should not be interpreted as an actual angel because in every case the angel is included in the critique and correction to each church, so it must be a man. Now obviously the church had more than seven leaders, but seven is used to indicate that Jesus holds authority over all leaders, over all the church, across all time. He's completely in charge of sending the Holy Spirit as we read in John 14. And he is the one who installs any leader into their position of authority, according to Romans 13. And by showing that he is the possessor and the controller of both of these things, he clearly links the success of any church leader to their level of exposure to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think of it this way. A beautiful Christmas light display, minus Jesus becomes no different than the light display you'd see in Las Vegas. Just look at that for a minute. There's not a, you may not be able to see it very well, but there is not a single indication of Jesus anywhere in there. You know, uh, Las Vegas is, uh, it's got a name called the City of Sin. And when you consider Christmas, and what we do, you know, Brother David said that there's a whole lot of people that don't buy into Jesus this time of year, but they enjoy the holiday. And I just want to be thinking this morning that it is the seven spirits, or the Holy Ghost, who makes the seven stars, which are the leaders of the church, who are shepherding and guiding the flock, it, you know, the church. The Holy Spirit makes us shine, makes the leaders of the church shine. Speaking of these stars or ministers, did you know that Jude chapter 13 tells us that such men cease to shine in God's firmament and they become wandering stars when they are not in submission to the Holy Ghost? Now let's tie it all together. The Sardinians put much stock in these seven wise men of Greece, as I said, because they remembered the doom that fell, befell their prior leader, King Croesus, when he ignored the wise man Solon. Christ also has a sevenfold source of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, who is meant to advise the seven stars, the leaders of the church. The King Croesus was destroyed because he failed to listen to one of the seven wisest men of Greece. Well, how much more doom would await the Sardinians if they failed to listen to the seven spirits of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, who is the source of all wisdom, sent to advise them by Christ? Christ says all of this to get their attention because like Croesus, there's a battle forming in their midst and they're ignoring it to their great peril. Well, it's time to wake up before they too are overthrown. So the message to Sardis is going to follow and Christ has their attention. He says, thou has a name that thou livest and art dead. And one of the things that I noticed during this time of year is that there is a danger for many people that by participating in this holiday, you, may, you know, you might walk around your local city, your local streets, and you see Christmas displays, you see nativity scenes, you see Christmas lights, you see Christmas trees, you hear platitudes that people say, Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, etc. And it may be that that creates this impression of life and service to the Lord that may not be there. 
And you see, some people would prefer that I just talk about only the birth of Jesus this morning, but I'm not going to do that because Jesus has already been born. And now he has something to say to those that he died for, specifically as they try to live and worship him during this time of year. Do we have a reputation that we live but are dead? Remember to, lay down the spirit, or remember to lay the spiritual truth of these words against the historical backdrop of the city of Sardis. They'd been overthrown, they were defeated and destroyed, all because they had a false impression of their reality. They had a reputation like ancient Sardis, which gave the impression their church was spiritually like an impregnable fortress. But like ancient Sardis, the church's reputation of spiritual security, it was false. And even worse, they'd bought into their own hype, and this is the real danger. Just like King Croesus of old did, Jesus is no stranger to addressing this specific problem, as you'll see. He mentions no words with the scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within, full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness, even so... Ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Now, this is precisely the charge Jesus leveled against the Sardinians. You put on a good show, and you've believed your own hype, but the beauty of your righteousness is only surface level. To be described as dead should not be taken lightly. When one grows casual with God, fails to reverence Him, fails to read His Word daily, fails to pray without ceasing, such a person begins to serve themselves. Now, I mentioned that Christmas carol before. If you remember Ebenezer Scrooge, he sees the ghost of Christmas past and Christmas present, but it's not till he sees the ghost of Christmas future that he gets scared. It's only then that he really decides, I'm going to change. And there's such power in that. Yeah, he feels a sense of regret and he sit maybe warm feelings when he considers the past and the present, but it's the future that gets his attention. We don't always have the benefit of seeing the future. And Jesus is going to tell the Sardinians what their future can be, but it doesn't have to be that way. It's very dangerous when a person claims that self-service is actually meant for Christ. Self-delusion of this type can only come from ignoring the guidance of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And like a plant removed from the Son, they eventually begin to wither and die. Separation from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit removes life. That's why I've got John 14, verse 6 up here. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Think of the star that's topping Christmas trees this time of year. That Christmas star is also known as the Star of Bethlehem, and it's a major seasonal uh, symbol throughout the world. You know, three wise men on camels gazed across the distance, and they saw a stable. And as you can imagine, the night was dark and visibility was limited, but above that stable, there was this indescribable illumination. There was a light that was showing the way for these three wise men. Would they have been called wise had they not been searching? I doubt it. The star, it is the heavenly sign of prophecy 
And it's the shining hope for humanity. See, they had heard of this. They knew it, and so they sought it out. Just like the, uh, the star, well, first of all, the Holy Spirit today for us is like that star on your Christmas tree. It is, it is illuminating something greater. It's illuminating the fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus. And, the, and while the light of that star pointed the way to Jesus, it's important to remember this time of year especially that, there, that um, the important thing there was that precious life that was represented, not the star. As miraculous and wonderful as it was, as interesting as that must have been, it was Jesus that it was all pointing to. Now, I wonder what Jesus would say to many who will celebrate his birth tomorrow. Would he say that they're alive or would he say that they're dead? If the only time someone thinks about Jesus all year is on Christmas Day, then I think the answer might not be what one would hope to hear. For there are 365 days in the year, and if you think of him but one day of the year, there's 364 days yet that remain. Now, what a, what a joy it is, truly, because I don't want to lose sight of this. What a joy it is to celebrate the day that our Lord was born. But let us not forget to be watchful for his imminent return. Sardis' problem <clears throat> was not that they had forgotten the things of the past. They were still going through the motions. They were still doing their works. They were still um, remembering Jesus. But they weren't living for him. They didn't have their, their focus on the future. And so what comes next for them is my question. I just want to say that if it feels a little heavy so far for a Christmas message, don't worry. <clears throat> it's going to get a little better because there is hope for the dead. Importantly for Sardis, the Spirit is many times listed throughout the Old and New Testament as the giver of life. Now, if someone withdraws from the Holy Spirit, then spiritual life ceases. But with the gift of the Holy Spirit, there's hope even for a dead church. Revelation 3, verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. See, even in the midst of severe condemnation, Jesus does not remove hope from the church in Sardis. They are spiritually dead, but it is never too late to change so long as we remain on this earth. Now, as we exchange gifts this season, remember that Jesus comes to us with a gift as well, the gift of the Holy Spirit the hope of life. And certainly the statement ready to die indicates that there were some signs of life still in Sardis. Thus Christ says, strengthen the things which remain, which are ready to die. God has a very unique method, doesn't he? He'll take the most unlikely times and circumstances to do his greatest works. A mere 70 years before the second temple would be utterly destroyed was a time of Roman rule, the people of God were subjugated. Jewish leadership was serving themselves rather than God. This is when Jesus was born. It was the height of the Pharisees' influence. The Sanhedrin, supposedly the court of justice guided by religious ideals, was corrupt to the very core. Death and oppressive sin were at their height when Jesus was born. But it was this time that Jesus sent his son to be born of a virgin. 
He didn't wait till after the temple was destroyed to come in and kind of make people feel better after a great disaster. He came just before it, just before the adversity. And at this perilous time, the Holy Spirit was sent to the earth to begin the greatest work in the history of the planet. And as a result, we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior. You know, since Adam and Eve, mankind has been sick and dying. The church in Sardis was dead and dying, but Jesus came bearing a gift of hope. It comes in the form of chastisement, true, but there's love behind it nevertheless. Hebrews 12, verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Let's go back one. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Christ corrects those whom he intends to receive. The corrective command is to awake and watch, and the gift is that the Lord doesn't give up on you. Christ doesn't say, arise from the dead to Sardis, because there's still some life left, which might be rekindled. The situation's not hopeless because Christ is able to give life even to the dead. Now, in light of the historic background of the city of Sardis, Christ's letter is very appropriate. Its language is very impressive. He counsels them to stop being careless and watch, just like Solon did with King Croesus in the past. And it's something that I find important to remember during this season as we rightly celebrate the birth of our Lord. Don't forget that that is not what we were commanded to remember. Where in the Bible does it say, this do in remembrance of my birth only? We are to remember the fullness of his life, and his birth is just the beginning so as we think about his birth, tomorrow, today, as we're thankful for it, as we approach God for it, let's remember that he's moved beyond that birth. He lived a life. He died. He was resurrected. He has ascended. You know where he's at right now. He is a grown God-man sitting at the right hand of the throne of God right now. He's no baby. And we can celebrate when he came, and that's wonderful, but let's not lose sight of what actually matters this season. Now, you know right now we're awaiting Christ's return as a conqueror, aren't we? And while we wait, we're at war. And it's important to man those walls and watch for his return. We have to fight the battles. We have to keep our lamps trimmed, full of oil and bright. We can't afford to claim his legacy while we let his vineyard become overgrown and unkempt. Jesus warned the church that if they failed to watch, he would overtake them as a thief in the most unexpected moment. You know, as I was thinking about this lesson, I told Clint up at the office when I was working, I said, it's hard to make Sardis into a Christmas message. He's talking so much about death. And I said, man, what, how unfortunate that it fell on this date. Because, you know, I'm just going through, and when the lesson falls, it falls. And so I told him, I said, man, my brain's getting a little fried trying to figure out how to make this correlate. And the more that I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, I am actively coming across people who they don't want to hear about Jesus' death tomorrow. You know, the only thing they want to hear about is the manger. I wonder how Jesus would feel about that. 
that certain people have set aside a day where they're going to claim to remember Jesus, but they're not going to remember what matters. In fact, they're hostile to it. They want to go into a church and they want to hear a message that they've heard a hundred times that they'll get nothing from because it will make them feel good. They know the story. They're not interested in learning or studying God's word. They're interested in feeling a certain way. And to some extent, there's nothing wrong with that. But if we have stepped off that wall, even on Christmas, if we're no longer watching, let me tell you, it's those times when the attack will come. And so we have to get up on that wall. That is what Jesus was telling Sardis. That is what I believe through Sardis he tells us today. Verse 3 says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. This is a picture from the 1800s of an actual band of thieves in the mountains surrounding Sardis. They have always been, these mountains, for as long as history records up until present modern day. There are thieves there. It's a favorite haunt for them. They swoop down unsuspectingly on, uh, or were they unexpectedly on unsuspecting travelers and villages, and no government has been able to successfully subdue them. The country is also subject to frequent earthquakes. Sardis was destroyed by a severe quake in AD 17. That quake, that one quake, actually laid 12 cities in Asia to ruin. Tiberius gave a very large sum of money to help Sardis rebuild after this earthquake, and he remitted taxes for five years. Jesus says, Thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. And it was an appropriate warning. Divine judgments, earthquakes, thieves, all these things approach us silently, stealthily, and they accomplish their tragic mission suddenly and without warning. Now, Sardis never actually fully recovered from that earthquake in AD 17. It was only partially rebuilt. And when this epistle that we're studying was written, the city was rapidly waning in prestige and glory, but its inhabitants were still boastful of the reputation and history of the past. Death and decay were inevitable for this city, but the Sardinians refused to recognize the fate of their own city. They continued to live on as though they were still in its ancient glory days. And the city had a name, but in reality it was dead and rapidly dying. So this wasn't just a spiritual affliction afflicting the church. The city itself was going through the same thing. Think about uh, Detroit. You know, there is nothing more desolate than a dead and dying city that once teemed with life, bustled with activity, and, you know, you pity those older residents that live there. You'll see them. They're in the barbershop. They're in the grocery store, and they're boasting about the past days of that city, and they vainly hope for a future time in which the place will be restored to what it was in the past. But the truth is, it's lost forever. It's not going to be like it used to be anymore. So it's not been an easy message for the Sardinians thus far. Jesus is laying a lot of truth bombs on them. And now he has something else to say to them. He says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Did you know Sardis, the name? It means those escaping or 
that which remains. Some scholars believe the word means remnant or an escaped few. Romans 11 verse 15, even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Jesus doesn't lose sight of a single one of his sheep and he reassures the faithful remnant in Sardis that he believes they are worthy of the greatest gift, that is to walk with Jesus himself in eternity. You know, one present I never get tired of opening is God's decision to declare me justified by the work of his son Jesus on the cross. I never get tired of that. Even in difficult times and circumstances, especially in those times, we can overflow with abundant joy at the gift of Jesus Christ. For there is a remnant which God has elected to never forsake, even to a dead and dying people, even to a group, a nation, a church that is failing to watch, has an imminent attack coming. Even to them, he says, there's going to be some of you that no matter come what may, you will walk with me in white. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Verse 5 uh, says, He that overcometh the same should be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I have a future lesson coming where I cover all these verses, but I just want to say this. If you're truly aware of two things, if you have an overwhelming desire to live with God for all eternity, to be present with your Lord Jesus, then you long for that day. And you're thankful for that book of life in which your name can be found. And if you also desire to obey him, and you realize that he says, only those who love me are going to experience that, and if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, then you tend to live most of your life thinking, oh God, don't blot out my name from the book of remembrance. Even if you know what the scripture says about that, that your salvation is secure, you probably experience some stress about what if God does blot my name out of that book of life? Well, Jesus says, you overcome, you bear through this, you keep your eyes on me, you remember me, not just my birth, but my life and my death and my resurrection. You do that. You keep your faith firmly grounded in me. Someday you're going to wear white and I will not blot your name out of that book. What a wonderful message of hope. That's what Jesus has given us, and I don't care how good those gifts are under that tree, I don't care how pretty those lights are, I don't care how much you enjoy the treats and the family, I hope that you'll remember that your thoughts will be inundated with this. My Lord is coming back. He said, get up on that wall and wait for it and watch for it. And he's got a robe of white that he's going to clothe me in, just like the father did with the prodigal son. He put him in a in a robe, and he's going to say, see, there's your name. Now come with me. Let me show you all the gifts my father and I have prepared for you. That's why we give gifts, because we're thinking about it's all signifying what's been done for us. So as we conclude, an incentive to watchfulness was this. Christ said this to the Sardinians, you will not know the hour at which I will come to judge you. 
There were overconfident and self-satisfied citizens in Sardis. They were suddenly surprised. They were overtaken. And so, too, will the religious world in general be someday. There will be a remnant. Not everybody that claims the name of the Lord Jesus will be recognized by him, we're told. They will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not done such and so in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. This remnant is who I know. The religious world in general is going to be caught in an overwhelming surprise. All because of a failure to watch. Let's be part of that faithful remnant. You know, Jesus declared there are a few names in Sardis which have not defiled my garments and or their garments and you know he we know his promises that he gave but you know what's neat about that is he says names which has the meaning of persons or a few souls they are the persons whose names are written in the book of life you know Christ knows his people by name there's not a single one of us that is obscure to him when Christ looks at us this morning he doesn't see a group I mean, he sees us as part of his body, and in that way we are a group. But you know, he sees each individual here, every one of us. It says in another part of Scripture that someday he's got a special name that no man knows but him that he's going to give to each one of us. He's got a special name for each of us. I, I always wonder what that's going to be. He has a name. He's thinking of that. He's thinking of your name every day. He's looking forward to that day. He's going to gift you with that name. So remember his name at Christmas. As we uh, wrap up here, it has been my custom to leave the very last verse for the invitation because it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Like I said, Jesus is the reason for this season. We celebrate his birth because that heralded the coming of the Messiah who saves us all from death. And you may be wished Merry Christmas this season. And if you've confessed your sins, repented of them, publicly declared that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and obeyed him in baptism, then those words are sweet indeed, aren't they? But if you haven't obeyed the gospel, then those words will ring hollow. Sure, they may signal gift-giving, pretty lights, family get-togethers, tinsel, and trees, but without Jesus, it's just another day that's been made shallow, for reasons that last for but a season. If that describes you and you pay more attention to Santa Claus than to Jesus Christ, then I implore you to reconsider. Stir yourself from your slumber, take your place on the wall, become a part of that faithful remnant and earnestly look for his return with us. Make haste and do not delay for just like Christmas Day, that great day of his return is coming soon. And when it arrives, the time for preparations is past. Accept him and proclaim with us, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, for our future indeed is bright. If you have needs of the church, or if you wish to obey the gospel and be baptized, we ask you to step forward, have a seat on the front bench as we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71, Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message, or would like to set up a study, please call 479 647-2658. May God bless you.